Well, good morning. For those of you that uh, I have not yet had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Steve Curry, and I am one of the pastors here at Frontline. It's, um, it's good to be with you as we continue on looking at this first century letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth. Now, we're going to start today by looking first at something that happened in our own history, in our own nation, uh, 54 years ago right now. It was the summer of 1969. The nation was still reeling from the assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy just a few months before that. Um, the, um, that year, 17,000 young men came home from Vietnam in flag-draped coffins. And there were protests, and there were violent um, assemblies all over the nation. The things, it no longer felt safe in our nation the way it had just a few years earlier. Well, in August, nearly half a million kids crashed the fences at uh, Yasger's Farm in upstate New York to uh, make the Woodstock Music Festival uh, both a financial disaster for the organizers uh, and a cultural touchstone for my generation. But in the middle of the upheaval of that summer of 1969, the world paused and kind of held its breath as NASA in late July uh, launched Apollo 11 from Cape Canaveral. For the first time in human history, people were going to attempt to land on and then walk around on the surface of the moon. Well, three days and 240,000 miles later, Neil Armstrong stepped out on the lunar surface and uttered uh, those now famous words, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. So Apollo 11 landed just five miles from its targeted landing zone, which is pretty amazing considering that the targeting computer that they used to get them there was a mainframe about the same size as this room, but with less computing power than the iPhone that's in your pocket. Okay, so that was, that was kind of an amazing feat. Um, so one of the things that the NASA engineers understood really well is that when they launched that spacecraft, they weren't going to be able to just aim at the moon where they saw it in that moment. But they were going to have to aim for where the moon would be in three days. So they've, you know, the moon might be over here tonight, but in three days, it's over here. So they had to calculate the moon's orbit really carefully, and then they had to launch for this blank piece of sky and intercept the moon in, in three days. So uh, they were very, very close, actually. They, um, but there were factors that they couldn't know beforehand. Uh, things like the, um, the solar radiation pressure, which pushes on spacecraft. Uh, they couldn't know the moon's gravitational anomalies. They couldn't really know those things until they got out there, and then they needed to make corrections. So knowing that they couldn't accurately predict these things, they added little rockets to the spacecraft so that they could move the spacecraft just a little bit, a little faster, a little bit slower. Uh, they could move it to the left or the right, 
up or down. And so that they could do this maneuver that's called a translunar injection, which sounds kind of painful, but it's not really. A translunar injection is coming towards the moon, and then as you approach it, make little corrections and slow the spacecraft down so that you can precisely intercept the moon and then begin orbiting around it. And that, so that's what they did. So what does the 1969 Apollo 11 mission have to do with 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and meat sacrifice to idols? I'm glad you asked because it actually has quite a bit to do with it, okay? This letter to the church at Corinth was not written as a how-to manual for planting churches. It just, it wasn't. It was written as a mid-course correction to a church that had already been launched, but now was finding that its course needed some correction. First Corinthians is like those little retro rockets that were on Apollo 11. They could redirect the spacecraft a little bit. So um, I printed out a copy of the letter of First Corinthians in letter form. Okay, no, no chapter divisions, um, no verses delineated, and reading it like the letter that it was originally written as has helped me to remember that this was a letter of correction to a church that was already brimming with life. See, these, these people had already been launched. They were, they were living the Christian life, and yet now they needed some correction. So... Um, the, um, the Apostle Paul had planted that church, and then it says he had been there for 18 months, uh, strengthening the believers, teaching them, putting elders in place, but then Paul had left. And now it's a couple years later, that church is, is beginning to veer off course, and, um, and so Paul writes this letter. Now, if 1 Corinthians is not a how-to manual for planting churches, the Old Testament book of Leviticus is a how-to manual. See, you can read Leviticus and you can learn everything you need to learn about following the Mosaic Law. A to Z. It's all there in Leviticus. But that's not how 1 Corinthians is written. Um, another uh, how-to manual is this one. This is our Frontline Community Group Handbook. Now, you can, everybody needs a copy of this. You can get it for six bucks at Amazon. And, uh, but you'll find in here everything about frontline community groups, um, how to join one, uh, why we have community groups, even how to lead one. So there's a lot in there. This is a how-to manual. That's not what 1 Corinthians is. So um, here's a question for you. To whom was 1 Corinthians written? Well, let's look. Um, 1 Corinthians 1.1 reads this, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenes to the church of God that was at Corinth. So this letter was written to the church at Corinth. It was written to them, but it has application for us. So to them with application for us. So why is it important for us to know that? It's important because we will read a mid-course correction letter differently than we read a how-to manual. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul begins addressing this issue of meat sacrificed to idols. That's the thing 
that he's writing about there. But if all we do is look at that thing that he's writing about, we're going to decide that this is an archaic, kind of odd letter written to people, and it has no application for us. See? Um, have you noticed that when you go to Uptown Grocery and you, you go to buy a package of ribs, there's a little label on there that says, this meat was sacrificed to Aphrodite in her temple on March the 17th. Best if used by March the 22nd. No, none of us have ever seen that because meat sacrificed to idols is not an issue in Edmond, Oklahoma in 2023. But it was the issue here. And so that's what Paul was focusing on, was that issue. But if all we do is see the thing that Paul was focusing on, then we miss something really important. And that really important thing is the thing behind the thing. Okay, So there's the thing, and then there's the thing behind the thing. Um, so if meat sacrificed to idols is the thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, what is the thing behind the thing? Well, Ryan and Dave both preached this really well um, a few weeks ago, and, um, and the thing behind the thing is, is spelled out in chapter 8 and verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So if the thing is meat sacrificed to idols, the thing behind the thing is not making my brother stumble. It's loving my brother well. And there's a ton of application for you and me in that. See, actually, all the letters, all the epistles are written like this. They're all letters of correction written to churches that were already flowing uh, in the life of Jesus. And they all have the thing and the thing behind the thing. Let's just think about the letter to the church at, um, at Galatia for a second. Um, in Galatia, false teachers had come in, and they were teaching that in order to follow Jesus, you first needed to become a Jew, and you needed to uh, follow the Mosaic law. See, that was the thing there. And um, so, you know, but you look at that today and you say, well, that's not an issue in Edmund. We don't have any people coming in here and telling us that we need to first become Jews and follow the Mosaic law so that we can, we can follow Jesus. See, that, that thing kind of misses us completely. But the thing behind the thing, see, that's the heresy that says that uh, in order for us to follow Jesus, we need Jesus plus something else. See, plus our righteousness, plus our good works, plus our pedigree. And see, that, that lie, that heresy is alive and well in, um, in Edmund today. Many voices are telling us that, yeah, Jesus is okay, but you also need these other things in order for you to have a fulfilled life. See? So as we read the letter of 1 Corinthians, we constantly need to be asking ourselves, what is the thing and what is the thing behind the thing? What is God showing us here today? Now, the thing may miss us completely, but the thing behind the thing will speak to us every time. So that's a long introduction. <laughs> um, so let's pray, and then we'll dig into these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, Lord, your word is um, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. 
And we just pray that, that as we look at these verses uh, that were written so long ago, Lord, that we will be able to hear the thing behind the thing. Lord, that we'll be able to hear the application that you have for us in Edmund 2023. Help us, Father. Give us um, eyes to see and ears to hear as we uh, look into your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, our verses today are a continuation of Paul's appeal to those believers in Corinth about meat sacrificed to idols. Now, like I said earlier, Ryan and David preached this really well. I'm not going to re-preach it. But in our first verse today, Paul gets really right to the point. And um, what he's talking about here is the thing behind the thing. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. See, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, while questions about demon meat uh, may not seem that, that really relevant to us, um, seeking our neighbor's good rather than our own good speaks to us right where we live. Paul's question is, are you loving your neighbor well? Let's let Jesus himself speak to this for us. In Luke chapter 10, there's a conversation recorded between Jesus and an attorney. So beginning in chapter 10 and verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up and to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So we have, we have an attorney with questionable motives coming and asking Jesus a question. Verse 25 tells us that he wanted to put Jesus to the test. And then verse 29 says that the man was desiring to justify himself. He asked Jesus a question about eternal life, and Jesus played along and said, what do you read? What does it say in the law? And the guy answered Jesus exactly correctly. He answered perfectly correctly. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. In another place, Jesus calls this the great commandment and says that loving God and loving people is the summation of the entire law and all the prophets. See, everything that God calls us to do in this life falls in one of those two categories, loving God and loving people. Um, let's push pause on just for just a second on this conversation between Jesus and the attorney and, uh, and talk for a minute about the word love. Uh, in the first century, when Jesus said the word love, he and all his listeners would have had some tools at their disposal that you and I are lacking. Um, the Greek language of the New Testament has several words for love that describe a wide range of human and godly affections. But we English speakers just have this one word, love. English language is really inadequate when it comes to trying to describe love. As an example, in our home, in our kitchen, we have four windows in a row that all face west. 
and we have an unobstructed view of the western horizon. And I love Oklahoma sunsets. But I also love my wife, Sandy. I love bacon. And I love Jesus. <laughs> so how many of you can see that if my affection for bacon and my affection for my wife, Sandy, and especially my love for Jesus are all on the same plane, um, I've got a serious problem here. You know, it's pork idolatry is what it is. <laughs> so uh, love is a slippery word in the English language. And if we want to differentiate between our depths or our levels of love, we try adding any number of reallys to the sentence. So I, I, I love my wife, Sandy, but I really, really, really love Jesus. See, that's, that's a lame way to communicate a really deep affection. So, um, the Greek of the New Testament is much better at expressing these different kinds of love. One Greek word would describe my feelings towards that beautiful Oklahoma sunset. A whole different word would describe the, the fireworks that went off in me 53 years ago when I met my wife Sandy. And yet another word would describe the, the love that God calls us towards him and towards one another, okay? That last Greek word is agape, and it's the, it's the love that we want to talk about today. Agape was the word that both Jesus and the lawyer used in Luke 10, talking about loving God and loving your neighbor. But in that passage, both, while both Jesus and the attorney agreed on love as the greatest commandment, the lawyer tried to slip out from under um, the implications of loving his neighbor by asking a hair-splitting, narrow definition of who is my neighbor. And he says, so who, who is my neighbor anyway? And Jesus tells him a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. That he sent him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So there's some backstory here um, that we need to have in order to make sense of this, of this story. First, the man who was attacked was Jewish. He was traveling in Israel from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the two people who first came across him were also both Jewish. One was a priest and one was a Levite. But the other man in this story, the one who stopped and cared for him, was Samaritan. And we could say a lot about the broken relationship between Jews and Samaritans, about how there were prejudices that went both ways, about how normally they didn't even have interaction with each other, see? A few centuries earlier, they had squared off against each other and tried to wipe the other out. So that's the setting for this story. Jesus tells us that the Jewish man was robbed, stripped, beaten, and left, left half dead and naked. 
And while he was laying there, both a priest and a Levite came by, his countrymen. They saw him, they looked the other way, crossed the street, and kept on going. But then a Samaritan shows up. And, um, and when, when the Samaritan came up, it says that he had compassion on the injured man. Now, this feeling of compassion then moved him into action. So the Samaritan bound his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he personally, physically ministered to him. He got this guy's blood on him. Okay? Then the next day he gave the innkeeper a fairly significant sum of money instructing him to care for the injured man. Then he told the innkeeper that if he spent more than what he'd been given, that the Samaritan would reimburse him when he got back. So look at what Jesus is saying here. The Samaritan first felt compassion, but then that feeling of compassion then moved him to demonstrate compassion. One was a feeling, the other caused him to get in the game and get dirty. Over and over in Scripture, we find places where it's written that Jesus came upon a situation or a person, and it says he felt compassion, but it never ends there. Jesus always then demonstrated compassion, see? So from this story, we can get a working definition of God's agape love, which is my brother's good at my expense, see? His good at my expense. That's what the Samaritan did. The injured man's good at the Samaritan's expense. Time, effort, money, inconvenience, even the risk of social persecution by inserting himself into a situation that was obviously a Jewish matter. See, not a Samaritan matter. This is a Jewish matter. Jesus shows us this kind of love best of all, leaving his place at the Father's side, Laying aside his royal robes, he took on himself the form of one of his created beings, a man. And as a man, he got hungry, he got tired, sometimes he was lonely. See, our good at his expense. How about all his suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that the Father was getting ready to put all of our sins on him and then turn his face away? hanging naked on a cross and dying a slow, horrible, painful death. See, our good at his expense. So when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and said, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor, this is the love that he was talking about. The important focus wasn't meat and where it had or hadn't been sacrificed, but it was about love. Love for one another was the thing behind the thing. It was massive implications for you and me. In a few weeks, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is that great chapter on love. But what we need to see is that this entire letter from verse 1 of chapter 1 up to this point has all been about love. And long after we stop reading 1 Corinthians 13, all the rest of the book is about love, too. See? Paul got intensely practical with those believers about how to express love. Things like not causing your brother to stumble by what you eat and what you drink. Paul is only playing two chords on his guitar, 
And he plays them over and over and over. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And he gives very practical instructions for how to do that. Paul was firing the retro rockets, see, on their church. And he was moving them from where they were back onto course in fulfilling the Great Commission. This, this is the theme of the passage that we're reading today. It's, it's the theme of that whole letter. And it's actually the theme of all the letters, all the epistles. Same thing. Firing the retro rockets to bring them back on course towards loving God and loving people. So, these are practical instructions for loving God and loving people. Well, coming back to um, 1 Corinthians 10, in verse 25, Paul writes, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I don't mean your conscience, but his. See, your brother's good at your expense. Then Paul asks a rhetorical question. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's uh, conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced for that for which I give thanks? But Paul has already answered this question about why his liberty should be determined by someone else's conscience. Because he wasn't there to exercise his liberty, but to seek the good of his neighbor. Their good at his expense. Then in verse 31, he writes, So when, what, uh, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the glory of God. If we're not careful, that phrase, the glory of God, can be kind of a vague sentiment without a lot of real meaning for us. So what is God's glory anyway? Uh, the ancient Greek word for glory is doxa, D-O-X-A, where we get doxology. And it was being used by Plato and Aristotle long before the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek. And when Plato used the word doxa, what he meant was that which can be seen. So the original thought was that God's glory was that of him which could be seen, which could be experienced by our senses. Uh, King David wrote in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, some of you know that when I was a boy, I was um, kind of fanatically interested in astronomy. And um, I, I spent a lot of time under the night sky, and um, I, could, I could recognize all the major constellations, most of the minor ones, and uh, I felt at home under the night sky. Well, when I was about 15, I traveled with my family far out into the desert where we camped for a few days, and uh, we, were, we were far from all city lights. And I remember that first night that I looked up into the sky, I was confused. Uh, the sky was so dark and so full of, of bright stars that I couldn't find my constellations in it. See? There, there were so many um, bright points of light, they buried my constellations and all that. I felt overwhelmed and I felt awestruck. I was experiencing something 
of that glory of God that, um, that David talked about back in Psalm 19. See, I was experiencing him with my senses. Theologian Christopher Morgan describes God's glory as the magnificence, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of his many perfections, which he displays in his creative and redemptive acts. So when Paul talks about doing all to the glory of God, his encouragement to the Corinthian people was to show the magnificence of God's creative and redemptive acts in their own lives, these broken but redeemed people in the city of Corinth. Jesus said it this way in John 15, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So here's the application for us. When we bear fruit, Jesus' name is lifted up and the Father is glorified. Fruit of the Spirit is described in Galatians 5 as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But fruit is not a gift. It's not something that God gives to us. Fruit is grown. Now, I wish I could use the magic wand on all of us or lay hands on all of us and, and God would suddenly impart fruit to us. But that's not how fruit comes. Fruit on a tree is grown. Fruit in our lives is grown. Okay, It just doesn't work like that. Um, there are gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to be looking at those when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but that's not what we're talking about here. Fruit is not a gift, but it is grown over a period of time by a relationship with Jesus. And then when that fruit appears in our lives, two things happen. First, we need to know that people are watching us See, whether they're our actual neighbors or um, our co-workers or maybe people in our family that haven't really decided about Jesus yet. They're watching us. And guess what? They know us and they're pretty sure that in and of ourselves, we're not going to produce that kind of fruit. So it gets their attention when they see that. And secondly, because Jesus is lifted up as a result of what he's done in us, the Father's glory is also underscored because all of this originated with him and it's all going to return back to him. See, it's one thing for us to sit in here in worship and sing glory to God. That's one thing. It's a whole other thing for the world to look at us and because of the fruit they see in us, they say glory to God. See, that's something else altogether. And that, folks, is what this life of walking with Jesus is about. It's a big part of the reason that we're still here. He didn't just, you know, we, we make a commitment for Jesus. And he says, that's it. He just whisks us out of here. Now, he wants us to bear fruit, and he wants the world to see it. And they'll know that we've been with him. Well, finally, in verse 32 of chapter 10, Paul writes, Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. We need to be careful here with what Paul is saying, because what he wrote sounds a lot like people-pleasing, and people-pleasing is, um, is rooted in the fear of man. Proverbs tells us that the fear of man brings a snare. 
Um, so is Paul talking about being a chameleon in whatever situation that he's in so that um, you know, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't get consumed by a predator? Uh, I think if you, if you look at Paul's life as it's described in the book of Acts, uh, Paul is anything but afraid of people. Whether he's confronting the uh, Jewish high priest or appealing his case before Roman magistrates or he's rebuking his brother Peter because Peter is acting hypocritically in the way that he's relating to Jews and Gentiles. See, Paul was not afraid of people. Um, he wasn't a people pleaser in the sense, uh, in the unhealthy sense of that word. So we've, we've all seen that it's possible for kind of a person with a strong personality to control and sort of absorb other people around them. And it's also possible for a weaker person to voluntarily give things away from their personhood, things that, that should never be given away. The modern term for both of those messed up relationships is codependency. And that's not what Paul is talking about here. So let's let Jesus be our example again and shed light on Paul's words. In John 13, Jesus is within hours of being betrayed, and then in the morning, he's going to be going to the cross. Beginning in verse 1, Now before the feast of Passover, uh, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from the Father and was returning to the Father. Jesus knew who he was, he knew where he came from, and he knew where he was going. And because of that, he could take off his outer garment, put a towel around his waist, and then model for his disciples serving at the lowest level. What, what looks like apparent weakness in Jesus is out, actually coming out of tremendous strength. Our good at his expense. By washing their feet, yes, but also by the events of the next few hours. Uh, the disciples abandoning him, Peter saying, I don't even know the guy. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Jesus would experience arrest, a mock trial, beating, crucifixion, and ultimately having the Father turn his face away from him. See, why would Jesus endure all that? He did it because he loves us, our good, at his expense. See? Uh, he could only endure those things because he knew who he was, where he had come from, and where he was going. And it's going to be the same with us. If we know those things about ourselves, then we'll be able to also rise to the high calling that God has on each of us, which is putting our brother's good above our own. So, um, lastly, you can only give away that which you have. If you don't have it, you can't give it away. 
If you're not secure in the fact of his, uh, that in his love, God created you, made you a co-worker with him in this life, and that you will ultimately spend an eternity with him, you will not be capable of putting another's welfare above your own. See, it just, it just won't be possible. Um, but if we know those things about us, we'll be able to do it, okay? Um, coming back to Paul's words in, at, to the church at Corinth, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. Paul could only do that because he was secure in the Father's love. Paul knew where he had been redeemed from, which was a really bad place. And he knew that God had adopted him into God's forever family and that he would be with the Lord forever. See, um, Because Paul knew that, he could work hard to be all things to all people, knowing that by doing that, some of them would be drawn to Jesus and be saved. Um, that secure place in the Father's love is available to each of us today. Some of us are hearing this for the first time, and it's, it's really, really good news for us. It's, it's eternally good news. Others of us are like those believers in Corinth who um, have been launched out into this mission of loving God and loving people, and yet today we're recognizing that we need some course correction, see? Um, wherever we are today, Jesus' invitation to us is the same. Come to me, all you who are heavy, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, but it is a yoke and it is a burden. Okay? Um, so whether you've been a believer for a long time or maybe today you're just realizing your need for a Savior, come to him. There'll be people up here after the service that would be happy to talk with you, who would be happy to pray with you. Um, his easy yoke and his light burden are the things that you and I were designed for. Stand with me and let's pray. Father, we, we are so grateful for your love. We're so grateful that, uh, that, Lord, in our brokenness, you didn't just kick us to the curb. You didn't leave us behind. But, Lord, you extended your love to us. Lord, you, you put our good above your own. And, Father, we thank you so much for that. We thank you for that kind of love. Father, I pray that you would give us courage to respond to you. Um, Lord, that, that we would respond to you, that we would spend that life with you where we bear fruit because we've been with you. And the world looks and they say glory to God. So, Father, we, we volunteer for that mission. We ask you to use it. Um, we ask you to do that work in us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.